Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I am lucky to welcome Brandon Cobb, the CEO of HBG Capital. Uh, he is located in Nashville, Tennessee, and Brandon is a CEO at HBG Capital and an expert real estate consultant and investor. Uh, he's been featured in REI Wealth Magazine and Forbes, and today he's really here to share some actionable advice about new construction, specifically about creating affordable housing entry-level products so that new homeowners can have a good entry point to actually become a homeowner, which is sort of the American dream here, right? <laughs> so welcome to the show, Brandon. Let's just kick it off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you even got started in real estate investing, man. Hey, Kent, it's an honor. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, yeah, so I mean, these days we co-founder HBG Capital. We work with investors to help build their legacy, achieve their dreams, and impact those close to them through unique real estate investments. But once upon a time, that wasn't always the case. My background, and had you asked me eight years ago that I'd be, you know, building these communities and trying to serve, you know, entry level housing and, and investors mm -hmm. to help reach their their goals and dreams, I would have looked at you like you had eight heads. I didn't have any dreams of getting into real estate. I was an accidental entrepreneur. I loved my job. I also didn't have a situation where you know, things were awful and terrible. Uh, I love what I did. I got to wear scrubs every single day. I was in medical cells. Mm. Uh, I did a lot of orthopedic implant surgery for uh, sports medicine. So I was focused on a lot of knees and a lot of soldier shoulders and uh, really love what I did. It was really cool getting to see the before and after effects of the patients that we were helping. So I had a lot of intrinsic motivation to continue to do what I was doing. Uh, I thought I was the coolest guy in the world, you know, young guy in his 20s wearing scrubs and surgery every mm. single day. And I'll never forget when I was going to meet my boss. I had just finished up a surgery that was really successful. It was a new surgeon. He was excited about the products. Everything with the competitors' products went bad. There was even more of our line that he was wanting to try out. And I was so excited to go meet my boss and give him the good news. And it was Friday. And as I pulled up to the Starbucks and I was walking across the country to go meet him, I sit down. I could tell his demeanor was a little bit off. And he fired me. Hmm. And it was a huge shock. Uh, I don't think I said anything for the first seven or eight seconds. I didn't know how to take it because it just came out of left field. I'd, I'd received like the Rookie of the Year award. Mm. You know, great for the previous year. We we're halfway through the year, and I was just confused. And at the end of the day, I realized what I took from that was nobody's going to look out for your financial well-being but you. You can be as mm -hmm. loyal as you want to a company. You can put in as many hours as you can and just really work, work, work. But at the end of the day, the company has to do what's best for them, which could potentially be to let you go. And so I took it upon myself to start looking out for my own my own financial well-being and my mm -hmm. own security. And so I was sort of forced to figure out what the next step was. Uh, I started going to a lot of meetups. I knew that I needed to get a mentor. Everybody kept preaching mm -hmm. that advice. So I went to all the meetups, met who would eventually be my business partner to this day and mentor for a few years. And we decided that we would do some business together. He was trying to get a wholesale flipping operation up and running. And I was like, well, mm. well, what do you need? And he said, just some boots on the ground and some guys who want to put some sweat equity into it. And mm. I went out and I started doing every single thing you could do A to Z to try to find deals that eventually led to us flipping a house. We took all the profits from that, dumped it back into the company. 
Uh, I like to joke around. What we did was it was use it for marketing dollars. And if you've ever seen that scene off of Batman where the Joker slides down the big pile of money and then throws the gasoline on it and lights it. I mean, that's what we were doing with marketing dollars. And so that popped out even more deals. And we grew and we scaled this machine to doing about 30, 40 deals a year, um, which was fantastic. But we were having problems with contractors. Mm. And we said, well, what if we did all the contracting in-house? And so that's how our construction company, HBG Construction, was born to help mitigate the timelines, control the cost. And everything was great. Was well, your finding these deals because we had the acquisition part built and we're managing deals and we had the construction company built. The next piece was the capital. We had all of our own money sunk in these deals and it was seven, mm. eight months later till we could get it out. And that's when HBG capital was born. And really it wasn't until we could replace and pull out all of our own capital and use that to actually grow and scale the business through hiring and investing in the right systems and processes and allow investors to earn money and get a piece of the deal that things really started to take off and scale. Wow. I mean, that seems like an amazing journey, right? You you kind of got a wake-up call from your job. And I think this is like a lot of people where they think like they are safe in their corporate jobs, right? You're comfortable. You come in and collect your two-week paycheck. And the mantra I've been trying to tell some of my friends has always been, I think it's more risky to, to depend your entire income and income streams onto one company because at any point in time, they can they can let you go. So it's almost more risky staying in your corporate job and only relying on your corporate job. So mm -hmm. I love that you were a great example of that. And not only did you take that event in your life, but you turn it as into something even greater. And that's such a great story, man. I love it. Congratulations on your success so far. 30 to 40 deals a year, like just to kind of get into it. That is no small feat, man. So congratulations there. No, I appreciate it. And I'm still friends with him to this day. Don't ever burn any bridges. What I mm -hmm. learned in the medical device sales industry, I have to thank him for all the skills that I was taught because I was able to take that sales acumen and I was able to go generate deals from it, sitting in the sales seat, driving the company. Mm -hmm. Got it. I mean, you know, I want to transition this conversation now into real estate where you talked about doing fix and flips in the beginning, but now your company is raising capital, doing syndications, doing like entry-level homes. What made you make that leap or that transition from like a, a scrappy wholesaling, fix and flipping business into like a full-blown machine in new construction? Tell us a little bit about what clicked for you there and why you made that transition. You know, for us, our primary focus was on capital preservation. So mm. our current thesis that has, it's evolved over time. Right. And I'll kind of go into the reasons why we've picked this thesis. But in the beginning, mm -hmm. we were doing a lot of spec. And the reason we were doing a lot of spec was because there was just huge opportunity in it. You know, we didn't have to pay a builder's fee. We were able to buy it off market. We weren't paying retail MLS prices. So we had all these equity baked in this deal. And the light bulb moment went off when we were doing a full gut rehab. At the same time, we were building a home and we actually built mm -hmm. a brand new home faster than we rehabbed this other one. And we made three times wow. the amount of money on it. And that's when we were like, wait a minute all right, we need to just pivot. And so we pivoted it and it was kind of the same game. You, you know, you're always chasing the onesie twosie deals. You got to keep the big marketing machine up of live. And we just realized that it was easier to talk to people who had pieces of land you could build 50 to 100 homes on mm. as it was to talk to somebody that owned one house or one or two houses. And so we knew that in order for us to grow and scale, we need to do more projects in the same area because you can either hire you know, a team to be super mm -hmm. spread out and managing 20, mm -hmm. 30 projects all over the place. And there's no economy of scale and it's done very inefficiently, or 
you can build them all at the same exact address and really cut down your overhead and stream on how efficient they're built. So that's what made us go into uh, a lot of the, the new construction. Now, as we're building all these things, you know, you're learning, you're seeing what costs go into it. You're learning about the risks of, of construction costs, you know, interest rates and you know, the mm -hmm. market supply and demand. And you're like, what would be something that would be recession resistant? Mm. What is something that's going to weather you know, any storm. And so I talked with a ton of investors who've been through three or four market cycles and got their viewpoint and the guys who lost everything and made it back. And they said, you want to be in the stuff that money continues to flow into when you have these economic contractions, like what we're going through right now. Mm -hmm. And you're going to ask yourself, certain needs are going to always stay there. And certain needs are going to go away. You know, people aren't always going to have, you know, vacation money when things uh, tighten up. People aren't always right. going to have, you know, money to buy these discretionary income items, but they're always going to need food. They're always going to need water. They're always going to need a place to live. So we wanted to be in that. Now, luckily, the place to live was something that we were already mm -hmm. doing. And we said, what is an area that's going to do well no matter what? And the answer to that was one, Supporting the macro environment, which was we wanted to be somewhere that was more affordable compared to the rest of the country, because when things contract, mm -hmm. people just pivot into the more affordable living arrangements. And that's not yep. houses, but areas of the country. So we wanted to be an area that was more affordable compared to the rest of the country. We wanted to be in the, one of the top 10 fastest growing cities, because when people mm -hmm. are moving to a city, money is moving to that city and money is what helps uh it, it helps lessen the burden of these economic contractions when you've got money moving in there. And then Tennessee specifically had some very popular um, you know, demographics that other spots didn't. There's no state income taxes here. You know, on a local mm -hmm. level, the city is incentivizing these big businesses to come and set up shops. You have tons of businesses moving here, which is bringing money. It's bringing people. And then on more of a a micro scale from risk management, like what asset class did we want to be in? Again, when it comes to housing, the first thing that takes a hit when you get these interest rate increases or a contract mm -hmm. correction in demand or an increase in the supply, it's the asset classes that have the smallest pool of buyers. So these are your more expensive homes, your, you know, your million plus, you know, your custom home, mm -hmm. those are the first ones that take a hit. And you're starting to see a lot of those build up uh, on the market. Um, people just tend to pivot down into the next thing that they can afford. And those those entry level home buyers, they make up roughly 36 percent of the entire home buying market. It's the largest demographic of the market. And less than 10 percent of the homes being built today can serve that market. We've got an affordable mm. housing crisis, right? It's been on the news for years. So we said if we can be in an area that is insulated because it has businesses and people moving here, aka money moving here. If there are strong reasons for businesses to continue to move here from high tax states like California, New Jersey, mm -hmm. New York, Massachusetts into our area, that gives us some insulation. If we can be in the asset classes that are very low supply, high demand, mm -hmm. even in today's mm -hmm. interest rate environment, we felt like that gave us a really good runway to not only serve mm -hmm. ourselves, but put our investors' capital into something where the main priority is capital preservation. And I love that. Capital preservation is your main goal. And I think that's what really resonated with me when I looked at some of your websites, some of your materials, because people always talk about making money, making money, making more, more, more. But they forget in order to make more, you got you have to have no losses or reduce your 
your losses, right? It's just mm-hmm. basic risk management that people don't really think about sometimes. So I think with the stock market as a very good example this year, everyone says like, hey, it goes up and up and up. Boom. What did we have this year? People's 401ks dropped 10, 20, 30%. You see some of these big, large capital funds lost, losing like trillions of dollars. And it's crazy when people don't know that there's another option for us to invest. And I'm so yeah. glad you bring up this asset class for entry level homes because you have a real you have a good stat there where 36 percent of the largest demographics like are entry home levels like that is a huge huge number and a huge opportunity for people that they might not be considering um so i want to get into new construction like just Mm -hmm. i want to provide value to our listeners because new construction sometimes sounds so daunting obviously you have an expertise in that area now but for normal person walking across new construction they're just thinking like oh I'm walking by this area to some dirt being dug up every once in a while you see some framing and like a big crane or something like that. Right. That's mm-hmm. to the extent most people's knowledge about new construction. Can you help us break us like, just break it down for us. Like what does a new construction process entail? Like from beginning to end and how maybe one of the first questions we can go into is like, how do you even pick the land? Like, what do you even pick to build? Cause you're just buying dirt. Right. So how, what is your criteria and how do you pick the areas for new construction? Yeah, I'll I'll give you a little bit of some high level, and if you want to do a deep dive, we can because there's a lot that oh, goes yeah. into it, depending on which stage you're at. And then I'll give you kind of the the cheat code at, at the very end. Love it, love it. Breaking it, but the the best way to do it is just to do it right. There's there's no <laughs> course that you can take because every single piece of land is different. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how many years you've been doing this, you're going to encounter problems you never encountered before. And you got to do it. But basically what we really do and and what the focal point of our strategy is, is we want to be able to force appreciate the value of the asset, no matter what asset that's in. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm not a big proponent of having the majority of my portfolio in stocks is I can't force appreciate that. Maybe I can buy at the right time and hold it long term and know that it's going to go up. But I want to be able to force appreciate the value of that asset. We do that through rezoning the land. So we're, mm. we have a very compelling sales message for the people that we're going after. If I can come to somebody whose home is worth $350,000 and say, hey, I can give you $700,000 for this home. Would you be interested in selling it? Chances are I'm going to have a pretty darn high close rate on that, mm-hmm. right? So for us, it starts with identifying winning opportunities because we don't want to waste our time going after pieces of land that – the city's not going to pass or rezone. So what we do is we actually identify the areas that are most developer friendly. So not all counties and areas are developer friendly. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that each mm-hmm. local municipality is kind of its own kingdom. So we'll identify the areas that do want development and the planning commission, and the mayor and everyone is very mm-hmm. pro-development and they roll out the red carpet for you. We go in and we bring a map and we say, hey, what do you, what's the vision for the city? What do you want? What's lacking? And we have them tell us. And we learned a few things by doing this. One is that no other developers are actually doing this. And two, you get buy-in already because they kind of get excited. You know, what parks are missing? What's this, that? So you understand what the needs are. The Planning Commission actually has a whole plan for the city. Believe it or not, like they've got an idea of what they want it to look like and what's missing and what's lacking. And they're looking for people to help partner and fill in that Mm. vision. That's where the developers come in. So they told us the areas. We said, hey, after we were done asking them, you know, their needs and wants, which areas would you support reasons? Which areas would you support density? Which areas do you want to support apartment complexes? 
And we literally just circled those areas and we went to those homeowners because we had the buy-in now and we had a very compelling, you know, speech. If I can take a piece of land that has one piece of like, I'll give you an example. We have a deal right now where we bought it for $700,000 and there's an existing home on it. We rezoned it and, and contingency on everything, right? We don't buy anything yep. until the value is there. Just, just a little tidbit, never buy a piece of land until it is completely rezoned and, and ready to rock and roll. But uh, that house is worth about $350,000. And mm -hmm. we're in a position where we're able to keep that existing home on the land, subdivide it off and sell it. So we're going to be all into this land for about $350,000, $370,000 that we can build 73 homes on. You know, it's value is somewhere around maybe two, $2.2 million as is. Those are the types of deals that we want to focus on because we've created so much equity in the deal that whatever the market does, interest rates go up, construction costs go up. We have, we have mitigated a lot of the potential issues that we could run into just by creating all that equity on the front end. So it starts on the front end with helping the city understand what their vision is and then going mm -hmm. and reverse engineering that into the areas that they will support these rezones and taking it from there. Um, and I know that this, this question was about, you know, tell us a little bit about new construction. There's so many facets. Do you want to start on the rezoning process? Do you want to start on the entitlement process or do you want to start on the infrastructure or the vertical? Cause there's a lot of different areas to it. And I think what I'm trying to just demystify the process, right? Because people don't get into new construction because they're like, I can't even picture what that whole process looks like. So yeah. if we can just list out real quick off the top of your head, like, Hey, you go into rezoning, you go into entitlements, you go into land serving, and just then you go into contract bidding. I think if we just spitball that list out, okay. that can be already tremendous value for people, right? Because for people that are so scared, they're scared because they don't know every single step. There are some people that are not action takers, right? You and I both know this. They won't take any action until they like, I need to know for sure that this house is going to make X amount of money. Well, we can start, we can't never guarantee that, but we can tell you, hey, we know all the steps of the process mm -hmm. and this is what it might take. And let's, once you kind of go through that list, let's talk about different challenges in each one. Just like very quick, like the most difficult challenges in each one. So when it comes to getting the piece of land rezoned and entitled, your civil engineer is your best friend. Uh, I've spent mm. hundreds of thousands of dollars correcting bad civil engineer mistakes, right? Wow. It's going to cost you. If you start to build on something where there's a bad foundation because the civil didn't do everything right and you find out that your dirt cost or the amount of gravel or whatever you got to bring in is way more than you thought – that's going to really get you in trouble. Again, it starts with having a really good civil engineer. If you've already done the homework on the front end and identified the piece with the city and you've got buy-in. So mm -hmm. next, your civil is going to tell you exactly how many homes you can actually get on this piece of land. So he's going to draw up a site plan and he's going to draw up, you know, stormwater mitig uh, mitigation. Uh, he's going to draw up the grading plan. He's going to see, actually see how many homes mm -hmm. you can build on this piece of land. Um, and that's going to tell you whether or not it's going to be a deal. Now, plan on having somewhere between, you know, thirty and a hundred thousand dollars to actually do all this work, right? You got to have the survey, you got to have the civil on it, and once you've actually got a pre we call it a preliminary plat, now you're ready to present that to the city, and the city's basically going to go have a hearing on it. There's going to be a public hearing, so all the mm -hmm. people that don't want it can show up and voice their opinions. Yep. But they're you're, they're going to go back and forth on this preliminary plat, and they're basically going to approve it 
or they're denied. There might be a couple hearings because you might have to go back based on the feedback from the local residents who might be concerned about traffic. Oh, you're going to build 73 homes here. Oh, we're going to have a traffic problem. And, and, and I'm not going to vote for you, Mr. Councilman, if you approve this development, right? Mm -hmm. So you might have to go back and get a traffic study. And so there's a little bit of ping pong that happens. Now, once you get the preliminary plat approved, that's just the first stage. Now you've got to ping pong and go back and forth between you, your civil engineer, and the city's engineer to get all the nuances of the development figured out. So the city mm -hmm. might have certain regulations and requirements on how they want certain things to be done. And so you're going to go back and forth. This is going to cost you even more money with your civil engineer. But basically, once you've come to an agreement with the city, and again, this is the city you're dealing with. So it's not like they've got hearings every single day. It's like once every two weeks, you've got a time clock to solve this next problem and stuff's constantly coming up. So once you ping pong, I mean, there's probably at least five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten back and forth. So you're going to do with the city's civil engineer uh, in order for them to approve it. And then once they do, it'll, it'll usually go to like the council meeting for a final plat approval. And then it gets submitted to the state because the state has to approve uh -huh. all the water and the infrastructure and the utilities that usually takes about a month. And then once the state approves it, you know, that civil engineer has to stamp it and sign off on it, get sent to the state and it comes back. Then you've got a final plat and you can now go and take the steps to go and pull your grading permit and start pushing some dirt around. Wow. That shows you how much knowledge you have. Right. And I think for all the investors that are looking out there, Everyone can say they're doing new construction, but you actually know the process and you're being realistic with your investors, right? You're trying to tell them realistically, here's how many back and forth. And you got to have experience working that. You got to understand like, what is the city looking for? And you have carried that mantra from beginning to end, Brandon, where you actually, before the rezoning part, you're going to the city and you're trying to listen to what they want they mm -hmm. to do in this, into the city. And then, then you listen some more once you get to the hearings, once you get to the, the city's engineers to kind of develop that plan to get the final plat. So that's awesome, man. Thank you for demystifying that process a little bit for us, especially in the planning section. So once you get that final, you start pulling permits for grading and stuff like that, does that just follow a normal construction or like what type of problems do you typically face? I've heard of water. Sometimes it's the hardest aspect of, of new construction. What do you feel like is the hardest part of new construction when you start after you get all these permits and stuff like that. It's all the different pieces and players that have to be put into place. You know, uh, we still build homes and infrastructure the same way we did, you know, 60, 70 years ago. I joke that the construction sector is like the last sector that is, has innovated. I think we've taken some steps in doing mm -hmm. a lot of these, you know, modular builds in-house and then mm -hmm. shipping the parts and assembling them. I'm excited to see what the future of those. When we can replace ro uh, humans with robots – because humans mm. make mistakes, robots rarely do. That's going to be a huge, huge way. But it, it's it's the human element. So again, you can't know everything there is to know about development. You are relying on your contractors to do a good job. I mean, there's no way one human being is going to be able to go and learn everything mm -hmm. there is about civil engineering or about stormwater or about you know roads and paving. Um, you you're you're reliant on other people. So. The main focus is on finding good subs and attracting strategic partners into the business. With development, uh, you know, like I said, have, hiring a bad civil engineer can cost you a lot of money. 
Um, you know, like right now, one of the problems we're having is the paving guy said that he was going to come and he was going to pave the roads at one of our developments. Well, he keeps getting pushed back. Meanwhile, the grading guys had everything ready. Well, we just had all this rain. And so you got these big pockets because they have to prepare the land a certain way for the paving to happen. Mm-hmm. And if the paving doesn't happen within a certain time frame, it basically uh, can create pottle uh, problems where you got to like pump water out or bring in more gravel for a certain area. And so getting the timing right with all the different trades that it takes in order to execute a infrastructure horizontal development, it's really difficult because they all have their own businesses, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why it takes so long. It's not necessarily that the process takes so long. It's getting the right tradesmen lined up at the right time. Um, another problem you can run into is volatile construction costs. You know, when you get pricing for something back in, you know, March and it's just now getting to the point where you can pave roads that, that price Mm -hmm. you got six months ago is no longer good. So you really need to build in contingencies, at least 20% increases on, on everything in, in today's environment. So those are probably the biggest problems that we're seeing right now, at least in the, the horizontal phase. There's other problems with the vertical phase, but we're, we're taking some steps to mitigate those. And man, this is why I appreciate you. You got to partner with people that know what they're doing and have experience, right? And I think the another way I would couch what you just said is probably sequencing, right? I think people underestimate how much massive coordination there needs to be for these ones. It's not just like, hey, once this is done, bam, you guys come in what if it rains, right? That's such a great example where you're fighting against mother nature. Like it rains to create some of these pockets and now everything kind of gets shifted out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you face delays all the time. And obviously you, with your experience, you have tried to mitigate all these risks for your investors and for the whole project as a whole. But there are sometimes there are things that you can't control. But now that you've gone through these pains, mm-hmm. you can better prepare for the next time. And I think that really speaks to the track record. And I think that speaks to why you have grown so much. So I want to kind of get into next, like, what does your portfolio look like, your business, your company's portfolio look like? Like, how many projects are you trying to take on at once? And is there certain, is there certain like, cap on your capacity where, like, hey, you know what? This is what we're comfortable right now in terms of building, in terms of, like, X amount of units with this amount of teams. Like, how are you guys handling scaling? And how, what's your capacity right now for your portfolio? Yeah, so our capacity currently under construction is between a mix between vertical and horizontal is about 76 homes that we're currently developing. We're underwriting, you know, we own, we're sitting on another 117 pads that we have not broken ground yet because we're underwriting things to do a build to rent model on those given the current interest rate and, and build to sell environment. And, you know, we've got a mixed use development that's about 78 units that we're sitting on that's got some retail and apartments built into it. And then, and currently in the entitlement phase, we've got another 220 to 250 lots that we'll get out of this particular piece of land. So what we're really focused on going forward is buying pieces of land that's going to keep us busy for, you know, three, four years, not necessarily trying to, again, hunt the onesie twosie things that might keep you busy for like a year and a half. We think that there's plenty of opportunity to get up to about 300 Mm -hmm. units per year. And so we want to keep a mix of, you know, doing the build to sell, trying to keep prices at, you know, $365,000 and less. That's why we're building smaller homes around 1100, 1200, 1400 square feet. And we're also adding the build to rent model to it because a lot of these people who are not going to be able to afford to buy these homes, they still need somewhere to rent. 
and you know their their space isn't as much of an issue they just they need somewhere to live and so having these smaller 1100 1200 1300 square foot homes are what's going to allow us to to serve them in the rental market as well that's awesome so maybe just a quick clarifying question help people understand your thought process about it right three you mentioned 365,000 1100 1300 square feet are these like three bed one bath homes and how did you pick these, right? Are these just like your normal, would you base it off of data or did you just study the local market? Like, hey, this is what people want in terms of purchase price and square footage and bed bath count. What do yeah, you, so how they're do you all, something like that? Yeah, great question. So they're all three bed, two bath, right? That's, that's what the number one thing that everybody wants. You know, first time home buyers want a three bed, two bath home, right? They're looking for starter families. They're looking for some mm-hmm. room, uh, room for the kiddos. They want a true master. And really it's the market telling us. So there's no magic formula. Interest rates have shot up. Mm-hmm. People want affordability. Well, if you've got an environment where it's getting more expensive to own a loan on a house and it's causing the builder more to build the home, the only way to really combat that is to lower the square footage of the home to try to meet a price point that your market Mm -hmm. can actually give it. So that's one of the reasons. And it underwrites better for a rental model in the event Mm -hmm. that we want to do a rental model and potentially build the sale. We have multiple exit strategies. We don't want to just be pigeonholed into one exit strategy. We want to be able to build and rent it or we want to be able Mm -hmm. to build and sell it and have options. Yeah. And I love that you guys are doing a built to rent model because that seems to be what people are getting more and more into nowadays mm-hmm. where you might be able to stabilize the property for a little bit. You can also sell it off at some point um, or not. But are you changing with the with pandemic, with COVID, right? People have talked about shifting the behaviors where one good example I heard in other pockets is like people want yards now because everybody seems to have gotten a dog in, in the last two years. Are you guys adjusting that at all? Where you're like, Hey, maybe we do three bed, two bath and we try to have a little workspace. We do, uh, we try to have more homes with a smaller yard fence and yard for dogs. Are you guys adjusting that at all? Have you seen any changes in the market and pivot it, pivot a little bit? I wouldn't say like big pivot. You know, not necessarily for the products. We looked at, you know, adding the additional office space. You know, people mm-hmm. definitely want a yard now, right? Oh, COVID, yeah. COVID just really blew, I got joke, it blew up the suburbs. We're seeing the majority of the growth, not in Davidson County proper, which mm. surrounds downtown, but in the suburbs. People don't have to come into work anymore, right? A large portion yeah. of the population is working from home. That allowed them to flee to the suburbs, which were more affordable to begin with. And mm-hmm. now they're set up shop there. So we, you know, we're not doing quite as much in the downtown core because a lot of the opportunity has moved to the suburbs. If you look at a heat map and you see the growth of the surrounding counties, you know, versus the core county historically, like everything in the suburbs is is what's growing. So we've shifted a lot of efforts over there. It's also where the affordability is, right? You know, yeah. these these little pockets outside where you can do these value add deals and you're actually able to build homes mm-hmm. for less than $400,000. Uh, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. And so it, add, it all starts with, you know, being able to add the value on the front end and build the equity in the deal mm-hmm. to be able to sell it at the price point that makes sense for your target buyer. Yeah. And I think you guys are buying, buying right for sure. Right. Coming in with the initial equity position so that you guys are protected from any sort of downside risk. It's not that you're going to be mitigated completely, but you guys bought right from the beginning. You guys developed the relationships. Then I can see why people have so much confidence in you guys. Um, I want to move the conversation a little bit of every podcast. We talk a little bit about affordable housing, right? I'm just curious. Do you know 
what percentage of like your buyers are low income? Do you know where not their FHA loans, which typically allow a lower down payment? Just curious as to whether or not like these bu these buyers of yours are typically like middle income, lower income, because I really want to see like, hey, affordable housing is really hard problem to solve. We need more supply. Is this one of the ways to help us solve the problem for, for folks? Yeah, it's mostly blue collar workers that mm -hmm. have combined income. I mean, that's primarily who's buying the homes. I would love to have that data. It's really difficult to obtain unless you're mm -hmm. getting like a survey from your, mm -hmm. your buyers. Some of it's pretty that's right. personal information that I don't know that they'd give up. So I don't have the data on the demographics that are buying our, our properties, but uh, you know, based on the areas and, you know, driving around the neighborhoods and uh, partnering, you know, with our, our our agent who's been doing this forever and understands the market really well. That's who's primarily buying our homes or, or blue collar combined income working class families. Yeah. And I would love to kind of see that's really helpful. And I think I would love to see your build to rent model as you kind of go into like we always talk about Section 8 housing choice vouchers where, you know, it plays along nicely to your recession proof investment thesis where it's government paid rent every single month and it's always guaranteed on time every month so that could be another way you can further your investment thesis of protecting your investors capital where it's like hey the rent the built to rent model we might be renting out to people that are on low income housing but yeah it's government government backed so that's another way i'm really interested to kind of see where your model kind of goes with that um the next thing i want to move into is mindset and i really like to harp on this a little bit because i think most people are paralyzed by fear. You have been the opposite of that. You have taken chance and invested in yourself. And just going from losing a job to doing fix and flips to doing new construction, you must have been scared at some point, right? I don't know if you're Superman or not, but tell us a little bit about how your mindset has changed and how you evolved as an entrepreneur to be willing to take those risks, take those leaps of faith and take on more risks because you are doing something that's really hard and something that most people in the world would never, ever do. Right. Tell us about how you made that shift within your own mindset and how, how did you do it, man? How'd you get over that fear? <laughs> There's a lot of different mindsets that you can adopt and learn from depending on where you are in your journey. Uh, the biggest one for me probably, and it was probably the very first one was, hitting the wall, wearing all the hats and realizing that you can't do this alone. You're going to yes. have to hire people. I mean, that was, a, that was a huge one. I mean, I was the young 27 year old guy running a hundred miles an hour, doing the books, doing all the sales appointments. I was, you know, doing project management on the houses. Uh, I was fielding all the incoming phone calls and I just, I hit the wall. There was no way I was like, I have mm. to hire people. So that was a huge mindset realizing that you're not going to be able to do it alone. Another big mindset shift that I had when it came to hiring after years and years of making these mistakes is if you're a small business and you really want to grow and scale things, you cannot do it without A plus rock stars on your team. Mm. I call them strategic partners. One of the old mindsets I used to have was hiring people where I could more or less afford them, right? Like I was looking to spend as little as possible and I was like, all right, well, I can train them. I've got good onboarding guides. I can teach them these things. You know, I can teach them the skills. And that works. It can, but you know, it's going to take six months to a year for them to get up and running. And I think at the point I was actually scared of hiring people that were smarter than me because maybe my mm. ego was a little bit involved in that. I was mm. like, well, what if they think I'm stupid or I don't know what I'm doing? That was a pretty big mindset shift that I have now. We only hire strategic partners. We have a very strenuous hiring process and it's something that I've given 
presentations on because it's so important. But one of the two biggest dominoes I'll, I'll kind of give you when it comes to hiring, mm -hmm. we don't have time to go into the whole process is one, you have to hire strategic partners. If this person does not come into your business and actually look at gaps, inefficiencies and ways mm. to make it better during the interview process. Cause you need to be doing mock work days. You need to have mm. them in and out of your business a lot. They need to meet the team. There's gotta be a culture fit. If this person can't make it better currently and show you how to do that during the interview process, they're not a strategic partner and we do not hire them. You've, you've got to hire strategic partners that can teach you and really take the department and just blow it up to another level. So that that's a pretty big domino that you can, you can push over and if you get things right. And the other is making sure that you're hiring for uh, culture first. In other words, make sure that everybody has, has the same core values. All of the greats talk about culture is the number one thing mm -hmm. that really helped catapult their business. And culture is basically how people in an organization interact with one another when they trust each other and they have the same core values. So those mm -hmm. two things, that was a really big mindset shift, higher strategic partners. Some of the other mindset shifts that I've had would include, you know, my, my investment thesis, you know, how I look at investments. When you're first starting out, it's like anything that can make money, you know, focus on it. Right. And I think a lot of people get, they get torn in many different ways. There was one point where we were trying to grow the construction company to doing it for other people while trying to do this business. So we had multiple businesses going, but they all weren't super successful. You know, a lot of people have that, especially if you're the visionary and you don't have an, impl mm -hmm. uh, an, an, an implementer in your business. Every yep. visionary needs like a COO. And if you're the visionary, you're going to have a hundred ideas an hour and you're going to want to pursue all of them. And they all, you know, make some money, but mm. your business at the end of the day is a barrel that is just it's got holes all over and it's bleeding. And you want to try to catch as much water as possible. If you just go get another barrel to catch more water, if it's got tons of holes, you're not going to hold much water. So the mindset shift that we had was like getting rid of all the ancillary services and just mm. building for ourselves and just hyper focusing. That was that was a pretty big mindset shift. And another one I'll say was realizing what business we were in. Once you realize mm. what business you're in, things become a lot more clear on what you need to do. You know, for example, I had an eye-opening experience where I was like, we're, we're really like a capital raising finance company. Like we're not a builder. You know, when people ask me what I did, I'd be, oh, I mean, I'm a real estate developer. Well, it's not necessarily true. Mm. Really, we raise capital and put it into unique real estate investments that are designed to be insulated against uh, market volatility. And so that would fall under being like a finance company, like a capital company. But we just happened to be vertically integrated and manage everything in-house. And so that was really eye-opening for me when, when I learned that and realized that because that allowed me to make the decisions that I needed towards what the long-term vision of the company was going to look like. Man, that is so beautiful, man. I think mm -hmm. coming to that realization, I think the one I resonate with most that you talked about is like hiring rock stars, hiring for culture, but obviously obviously like making sure someone comes in that's smarter than you like this is how we all level up and i think sometimes we as entrepreneurs we always try to be like i gotta do this i'm the best at doing this and you forget that there has to be someone out there in the world that does it better than you or knows a little oh, yeah. bit more than you and your job is to find that and i sometimes that is the hardest job of being an entrepreneur like how do you go find these people right this is why you go to meetups this is why you try to expand your network this is how you build your rockstar team so you can protect your investors capital Oh man, I love that dude. Um, and I love the crystal clear color uh, vision that you have for your company. Uh, I want to 
make sure, you know, we give you some time to talk about, Hey, what, I mean, Brandon, what else do you need in your business? You talk about your finance capital raising company. Now you raise a lot of capital. You do a ton of products. You protect your investors capital. What do you need in your business right now? And how can people reach out to you going forward? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it never ends, right? There's an endless supply. <laughs> needs. We're really focused on getting HBG supply uh, up and running. You know, again, we're trying to mitigate as many problems as we see out there and the supply chain's a big issue, having to wait mm -hmm. on certain materials, volatile construction pricing. If I can go buy stuff in Turkey for 30% of the cost when it's better quality than what I can get here in the United States. I mean, that's huge. We're trying to get our build costs yeah. down, uh, you know, in the low 100s and that's really going to be able to take us to the next level. So those are some of the needs that we're currently looking at. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting, uh, you know, the interest rates like everybody else, <laughs> yeah. not a whole lot you can do about that. We're just kind of sitting on what we have. Um, we can wait it out. We've got the time. So we're mm -hmm. kind of hanging on the sidelines and, and, you know, building up our war chest with our current investors to be able to take down the next uh, tranche of deals as long as it underwrites and it's a good deal. Um, but, you know, really, we're, we're, we're cruising right now. If, if people want to learn more about what we do, if you're interested in unique real estate investments, if you're somebody who is trying to build a legacy for your family, mm -hmm. if you're trying to reach your dreams or um, impact those close to you through passive income secured by real estate, you know, you can learn a ton at our website. Uh, it's hbgcapital.net. It's Harry Bob Gary Capital.net. We've got a free ebook on there, uh, Recession Resistant Real Estate. Um, we've got a second ebook on there called 100 Questions Passive Investors Should Be Asking uh, mm, Before Investing. Great. The reason I wrote that book was because I had a friend of one of our current investors call. And, you know, the, the guy introduced us and said, hey, Brandon, would you be willing to have a conversation with him? He's, he's not doing so hot. He ran into a problem. And this guy literally lost all of his investment to a real estate investor because oh, he did no. not ask the right questions. He didn't do the paperwork right because he didn't know. And so I wrote that book, 100 Questions Passive Investors Should Be Asking Before Investing in the hopes that if I could just prevent that from happening to one person, it would mm -hmm. be worth it. So you can go on the website, you can grab that. We've got a ton of other free educational content. If you want to set up a one-on-one -on -one call and learn more, um, you know, we've got a link to our schedule, our Calendly schedule right there. And, and everybody gets me personally. Um, you know, we try to build a relationship with each and every person that we meet. Um, and we look forward to getting to know you. Oh, that's awesome, man. And I that was HBG Capital for the listeners that are listening on the podcast right now. Feel free to visit it. Check out Brandon's ebooks. I definitely want you to look at these resources because Brandon has a wealth of knowledge, especially around new construction. I think it's really worthwhile for you to understand like all the different pieces of it so that even if you don't invest with any of us, Go and learn so you can be, at least be educated and intelligent and make an informed decision about where you're parking your money. Because right now with stock market going down and down, more and more risk coming up, you need to be aware of what you're investing in. So Brandon, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for what you do for all these entry level affordable housing units that you guys are developing. You guys are making the American dream come true for so many families. And I think we cannot discount that. We need more people like you coming into this world to build these products because we do have an affordable housing shortage. I know affordable housing is a very broad term sometimes, but being able to buy a home and put your family in it and have a shelter over your head, that really allows for life changes, life-changing events for your family to kind of take place, for your children to prosper. So thank you again for coming on the show, Brandon. Really, really appreciate it. It was an honor. Thanks for having me, Kent. All right.